Hello, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Chelsea Follett. I'm a policy analyst at Cato Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and managing editor of humanprogress.org, a website you should check out if you're interested in all the ways that freedom and innovation can help to make the world wealthier, healthier, safer, and even greener. Uh, perhaps of particular interest to those of you attending this event today. Thank you so much for attending in person or online for today's book forum. For a time to think small, how nimble environmental technologies can solve our biggest problems. And after the presentations, we'll have time for questions from you, the audience. But you don't have to wait for Q&A to start submitting questions. If you'd like to do that, you can do so online now and join the conversation using the hashtag Cato events when tweeting. And we're also taking questions from Facebook and all other platforms where you're able to watch this. So feel free to start submitting those now and we'll get to as many as we can. And after the Q&A, please stick around if you're here in person for lunch. Um, but without further ado, I have the pleasure of introducing our speakers, first the author, Todd Myers, the director of the Center for the Environment at the Washington Policy Center, a former member of the executive team at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources. He is also a member of the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council. And I just learned this uh, backstage, also a citizen advisor for the Hanford Nuclear Cleanup. Uh, he's also... Uh, uh, his writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Seattle Times, and USA Today, and he has appeared on numerous networks, including CNBC, Fox News, the BBC, and CNN, and he has also served as president of his local beekeeping club. You might uh, get a hint about that from his tie. Yes, and uh, in his words, this is in his quest to build an army of stinging insects at his command, a quest that seems to be going rather well. He currently has over 200,000 honeybees who live with him and his family in Washington state. His previous book, Ecofads, How the Rise of Trendy Environmentalism is Harming the Environment, documented how environmental policies are often uh, too often driven by a desire to look good rather than to actually help the environment. And his new book, which we'll be discussing today, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems, looks at how environmental stewardship is shifting away from politicians and outlines how those small technologies are empowering ordinary people to protect threatened wildlife species, reduce CO2 emissions, uh, prevent pollution from accumulating in the ocean, and many other things that we'll be discussing shortly. Uh, Jonathan Adler will also be providing comments. He's an acclaimed law professor and the director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where he teaches courses in environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. He is the author or editor of numerous books, including Rebuilding the Ark, New Perspectives on Endangered Species Act Reform, and most recently, Climate Liberalism, Perspectives on Liberty, Property, and Pollution, which came out earlier this year. His articles have appeared in publications ranging from the Harvard Environmental Law Review to the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. He has testified before Congress a dozen times been cited in the U.S. Supreme Court, and a study identified him as the fifth most cited legal academic in all of administrative and environmental law from 2016 to 2020. He's a contributing editor 
to National Review Online and a regular contributor to the popular legal blog, The Volok Conspiracy. He has also appeared on numerous radio and TV programs ranging from PBS NewsHour and NPR to Fox News Channel and Entertainment Tonight. And he's also a senior fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center and has been praised for putting principles over politics, even by ideological opponents, such as Daniel Farber, a professor at UC Berkeley School of Law who disagrees with Jonathan on environmental policy, but nonetheless says his intellectual integrity is a model to be emulated in the academy and elsewhere. So Todd, uh, let's start with you and move on. Thank you very much. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, as she said, that I, I've worked in environmental policy for uh, more than two decades in Washington State, uh, which is a fertile uh, uh, political environment for uh, studying environmental policy up front. Um, and my first book, Ecofads, um, talked about what I have seen in working in state government agencies and environmental policy, which is that so often the policies that we make and that politicians choose are based more on making them look good and feel good rather than actually delivering environmental outcomes. And those, those incentives cause us to go in the wrong direction in many cases. It's, it's sort of like I was in Vegas and there was a guy who was sort of scruffy looking and I came out and he said, excuse me, sir, I haven't had anything to eat. Do you have any money? And I said, if I give you money, how do I know that you're not just going to gamble it? And he says, oh, well, I've got gambling money. All right. All right. His priorities were fun before the fundamentals, and that's what I see so often in the environment, and that's what I wrote my first book. My new book, Time to Think Small, is an effort to try to solve that, to shift power from politicians to people who are on the ground who have the right uh, alignment of incentives, and now they have the tools to solve many of these environmental problems. Um, and I first want to start with, before I talk about that, uh, a lot of times we are told that only government can solve uh, environmental problems and only government can do things at the scale that is necessary to solve these problems. And I want to give an example of why that's not true. Let me see if I can hit this correctly. Obviously not. There we go. All right. So... Um, I want to talk about the California energy crisis um, last September. So uh, there was a series of hot days in California. We're all familiar with the fragility um, of the California energy system. Um, and in early September, they were facing energy shortages um, and potential blackouts. And they did something that they had never done before, at least at this scale, which is simply to text people, residential customers, we are facing shortages. Please conserve where you can. No requirement, no incentive, just, you know, please help us where you can. And what happened over the next 15 minutes was is that demand dropped by about 2,000 megawatts. So in the circle here, you can see all of a sudden there is a sharp drop uh, in demand that occurred simply because of that text. And to put that in context, I've got this other chart here on the right, which shows the amount of battery power that was in the state. And you can see at the very peak, they had about 3,000 megawatts of installed battery power that was being used that day. So think about that. One text reduced demand 
by two-thirds of the installed battery power that they had at the time. Think about the billions of dollars that have been spent to install that battery power, and yet one text was able to do two-thirds of that amount. Now, this is a moment in time. Um, it's, not, you know, it's not every single day. But the argument that only politicians can manage these challenges, when you look at what happens even with just a simple text, when you empower people, when you engage them to make changes and help the environment reduce um, energy use, you can see the potential power that exists if we use technology. The other problem, of course, is, is that government's incentives are not always aligned um, with people or the environment. So the best example, I think, is the Flint water crisis. You're probably familiar um, with what happened. The city of Flint, Michigan, in an effort to cut costs, switched the source of its water. Turned out that that water was corrosive to the pipes in the town. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. There are chemicals and other things you can do, many cities do, to reduce the corrosion. But they didn't realize it. And what ended up happening is, is that the water coming out of the taps looked like uh, the water that's in this, uh, the, the bottle this woman is holding right here. Now, initially, both the state and federal government denied that there was any problem. The, uh, one of the people at the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality said, anyone concerned about lead in the drinking water can relax. Well, that, of course, turned out not to be true. So the EPA and the Department of Environmental Quality finally realized, okay, we've got a problem. We need to do something. What can we do? So the EPA identified, the regional office identified a source of funding that they could buy water filters for the people in Flint, Michigan. But then there was a debate because that source of funding wasn't really for that type of purpose. And if they used it in that way, then they might get requests in other areas to use it the same thing. And so there was an internal debate, and they finally decided against it. And one of the emails said, we could probably justify this, but, quote, I'm not sure if Flint is the kind of community we want to go out on a limb for. That's the EPA. That was who was supposed to be looking out for the people of Flint, Michigan. And to add insult to injury, when the regional director was called before Congress to discuss the Flint water crisis, she said, I don't think anyone at EPA did anything wrong. So that's this, So the assumption often is, one, that only government can solve these problems, and two, that government has your back when trying to address these environmental problems, and the Flint water crisis is a pretty clear example that that's not always the case. So what's going on here? Why aren't we solving these problems? And the answer is, is that politics repeatedly trumps environmental outcomes. So this is a poll from Gallup from 2016 that found at that time that climate change was the most divisive issue in America. This has since been eclipsed. Uh, we are back to abortion being the most divisive issue in America. But still, climate change is one of the most divisive. So if you are trying to address a long-term environmental challenge in an environment where politics is extremely divisive, it is very difficult to get policies that are sustainable in the truest sense of that word, which is that they can be sustained over a long period of time. We are not going to solve climate change or a number of environmental problems, right? I've been doing this for 20 years, and many of the same problems I see today were the problems that I saw when I started in environmental policy. 
in order to solve these problems, you have to have sustained effort. In an environment where politics is so divisive, it is very difficult um, to get that. And in fact, what you often see is a disconnect between what is happening on the ground and the data that are available and the reactions to it. And so this is actually a quote from Superabundance um, where um, Julian Simon was being attacked and people were surprised because he was pointing out, look, here are the data about abundance and the costs of resources. And one uh, scientist said it is quite ironic that people who think of themselves as real scientists were the ones coming up with excuses for not dealing with the data, resorting to ad hominem attacks and generally showing a disdain for scientific methods that I formerly thought would be found only among book burners. So why does this happen? It happens because the incentives for politicians and other folks are often not to find the best solution. They are to either make themselves look good, to solve, or to justify their own ideology. Um, and they don't, they're not involved in feedback. They don't get negative feedback when policies, uh, environmental policies fail. The primary feedback they get is from their colleagues, from the, from the voters, from other things like that. So what they do is that they cater those policies to the people that they do get feedback from. And even when environmental policies, the one they're advocating, don't work out, they don't feel the cost for those things. So the question is, what can we do? How do we solve this problem? And the answer is that I think it's time to democratize environmentalism. And it's time to think small rather than big government. So it's not just me um, who thinks that we need to do things differently than we did in the 1970s. It's actually uh, Bill Ruckelshaus. Bill Ruckelshaus was the first director of the EPA um, who was responsible for many of the, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the other things that people on the left so often point to as touchstones for the way that we need to address environmental problems. But a little over a decade ago, he wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal that said yesterday's solutions worked well in yesterday's problems. But the solutions we devised back in the 1970s aren't likely to make much of a dent in environmental problems we face today. And the primary reason is, is that when you're addressing problems like uh, plastic in the ocean or impacts to wildlife habitat or climate change, the sources of pollution are distributed. They're not single smokestacks or big outfalls, which are much easier for the EPA and for government to address. So now, if you want to address a distributed environmental problem, you need distributed solutions. And fortunately, we now have those. And I am contractually obligated, uh, because I work for a free market think tank, to, so, uh, to uh, quote Nobel-winning economists. Here are two. First, uh, this is very much like what uh, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, who was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics, um, says, and she says, what we have ignored is what citizens can do and the importance of real involvement of the people versus just having somebody in Washington make a rule. Thanks to technology, this is now even more true. People now have more power, more ability to do these sorts of things, to collaborate with each other, to get the information that they need to solve environmental problems. And the reason is, is that the cost of information and the transaction costs of information and of collaboration have gone way down, which is what Ronald Coase pointed out. And so what, and I, uh, this, uh, quote from him I think is particularly important where he says the governmental administrative machine is not itself costless. It can in fact on occasion be extremely costly. 
And so we have gone from a situation in the 1970s where government was probably the best uh, way to solve some of the big environmental problems we faced to where now the transaction costs involved in individual collaboration, collaboration among private citizens, is probably far lower than the costs of doing things through regulation. And so whereas in the 1970s, using the EPA was probably the better approach because the cost of collaboration was very high for individuals, that has now flipped on its head, and it's given us an opportunity to solve environmental problems in a very different way. And I will give you my favorite example. So the beauty of small technology and innovation is that it is adaptable to so many parts of the world, right? We're all used to using technology in, in the United States and in the West, but it is now being applied across the globe. So in Africa, um, there is a number of places where there is uh, difficult to get water. Um, and in many of these places, what ends up happening is people, primarily women, hike to a local source of water. They pick up as much water as they can carry and then carry it back to the village. And then if they want to make sure that that water is clean, they either they, they have to boil it, which often means putting stress on local forests and cutting down uh, trees for charcoal and things like that. The other way that they can get water is that they can buy plastic bags uh, of water. But of course, what do you do then with the plastic bags? If you don't have access to water, you probably don't have access to trash collection. So a group called eWater Services came up with a pump that is internet connected. And the reason they did this is because they wanted to see which pumps were working and which weren't. And then the other thing that they did was they charged a very small fee for water, about a penny a day, so people could fill up their account um, using their phone, and then they hold up what this woman is holding up here, looks like a key fob to the pump to uh, access the water. And the beauty of this, because there is a small fee, she's very careful about how much water she takes. She, she doesn't want to take more than she needs to because it costs money. But the other thing is, is that if that pump breaks, eWater Services knows immediately because it's internet connected. One of the challenges of water pumps in Africa is that pumps installed by governments or NGOs often break. E-Water Services says that about after about 18 months, about 40% of pumps break. So then what happens, right? Where is the government? Where is the NGO? Is there somebody who knows how to fix it? They often have to wait sometimes months to have these pumps uh, fixed. But with e-Water Services, they know immediately when that pump is broken, and they have a financial incentive to go fix it. And here are the results. And you can actually, this is a live dashboard that eWater Services has. And you can see that earlier this year, they just passed 1 billion liters of water served to more than 212,000 people in the three countries in which they work. But most notable is the bottom right-hand corner that shows that 98% of their smart taps are working. Because when tap breaks, they're losing money, and somebody have people in the area to go fix it and make it sure it gets back online. And so now that means that the people in these villages know that they have reliable and consistent access to water. Oh, go back one. There we go. So the beauty of these technologies and of thinking small is that it turbocharges superabundance, which is the obviously the focus of the work of the human progress. So Julian Simon's argument was that innovation, boosted by all of the new minds in the increase in population, that that innovation overcome resource scarcity issues. 
But if you assume that 20 and 30 years ago, only a small percentage of people sort of have access, have the ability to innovate these new things, then even though we are keeping up and actually exceeding um, resource capacity or resource um, uh, uh, limitations, that when you extend innovation to all sorts of new people by lowering the barriers and making small innovations possible, you now take that superabundance and you turbocharge it because the percentage of those new people on the planet who have access to innovation and the ability to innovate becomes even greater. And so my hope is, is that what we will see in the near future is that the superabundance that we have seen is actually increasing because more people can come up with these sorts of solutions. And so let me just finish with this. There are three things I think that are key to the power of thinking small. First, it is sustainable and durable. Like I said, in a political environment where there is so much um, uh, uh, polarization, environmental policy is very difficult to be sustainable and sustain over the long run. Technology doesn't go backwards, rarely goes backwards. It goes forwards. And so it doesn't matter whether you believe climate change is a crisis or a hoax. If you are getting a technology that is helping you conserve energy, you're going to keep it. And that makes that approach more sustainable. Second, it is adaptable. The example I gave uh, was in rural Africa, but there are examples of these technologies all across the globe, and they can be adapted to many small problems and localized problems. And lastly, it connects people to the problems directly. It is not people in Washington or Brussels or the United Nations who are imposing these. It is people on the ground who have the most to gain or lose from the success and respond to the incentives um, and the success or failure of those technologies who are making the decisions and finding out how to apply it, which is why you see the situation you do in Africa where the 98% of the pumps are working and they've delivered more than a billion liters of water. That, I think, is the real exciting revolution that we are on the verge of, which is that these small technologies are already changing the way that we address environmental problems. And for people like me who care about personal freedom and prosperity, it aligns those two things with environmental sustainability for the future. Thank you so much. All righty. Well, thanks. It's a a pleasure to be back at at the Cato Institute. It's always uh, fun to be back here. I was reminiscing earlier about my first summer as an intern at the Cato Institute back in 1990, and it's great to see all that's happened since then. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here to talk about this book. Um, I learned a lot from it. Um, It's filled with uh, anecdotes and stories about... uh, technologies that enable people to address problems and uh, enable entrepreneurs and conservationists, either for-profit or not-for-profit, uh, to try and address environmental concerns in their own backyards or in their own communities, and, and certainly encountered a lot of stories that will be useful in my own work. Um, and I think in particular, the stories that occur not here, uh, but that occur overseas, uh, like the water example that Todd was talking about in particular, uh, are, are particularly important because we see in some of those stories the role that technology can play in enabling communities to make up for the failures of not only governments but other institutions to provide the framework in which people can order their lives and, and seek their own well-being. Um, and that certainly 
something that's an important part of the story that Todd tells. It, it reminds me in some respects of, of uh, some of the work that people like Gary Liebkamp have done about how when technology and other sorts of things reduce transaction costs for private ordering, communities can in effect, uh, through contract and through private arrangements, create proxies for the legal institutions uh, that we usually rely upon government to provide in terms of protection of property rights, enforcement of contracts, and things like that. Uh, and the extent to which technology is making more things like that possible is certainly uh, something to be very happy about and, and something to celebrate. Now, I was asked to be a commentator on the book, so if all I did was come and say wonderful things and he pr praised on Todd and, and, and putting this together, I, I'm sure that would please Todd, but I don't think that would be fully fulfilling my role as a commentator. So um, what I wanted to do is, is, is I guess, express or raise two caveats, and they might be caveats that, that Todd actually agrees with um, about some of what's in the book, and then um, extend what I think is the book is, is talking about in, into what, an area where I think we need to be providing uh, greater attention in terms of how we think about some of these problems, and, and then hopefully that will be a, a basis for uh, further discussion. Um, so the first caveat is uh, Todd's certainly correct that that small changes are important. Um, the economists in the room would emphasize that you know important changes occur at the margin, and if we're talking about changes at the margin, we're often talking about small changes uh, that ripple throughout society as different people in different circumstances make changes in their own behavior and their own decisions because of changes at the margin, and that's certainly true. And when we think about uh, superabundance and we think about increasing efficiency and conservation of resource use in particular, uh, small changes at the margin are, are a huge, important part of the story, and technology certainly can supercharge that. Um, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that big things are often important, too. A lot of the stories in the book are about what can be done through apps on cell phones, and it's worth thinking about cell phones and communication technology and the rather big, dramatic changes that played such a huge role in lessening the environmental impact of the way we communicate with each other. When I was an intern at the Cato Institute back in 1990, we largely communicated with each other through copper wire, an incredibly resource and energy intensive way to produce the means of telecommunications. I don't know if folks have been to a copper mine, if folks have been to a copper smelter, unless you're doing it for research or for your uh, 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 for your paycheck, I don't recommend it. Um, but these are incredibly environmentally intensive operations. Uh, in the 1990s, we were, began replacing that with silica in the form of fiber optics, something that was incredibly less resource intensive, incredibly less polluting to produce, incredibly more efficient and powerful as a means of communicating. Uh, and today, we have replaced that in large respects with bandwidth, which with wireless, with uh, materialless communication technology. Uh, that is to say that we don't need material conduits, uh, we just need the materials for our phones and for the, uh, the, the waypoints that we use for transmitting. Those large changes driven by large corporate investment were huge and are an example of the sort of dematerialization that is created uh, by large dramatic changes in technologies. And we need to recognize that those are a big important part of the story and we want to encourage more changes of that magnitude. It's not enough to just focus on um, uh, the small changes at the margin. 
Second caveat I have, it's probably a more important one, um, is that insofar as technology re reduces transaction costs for individuals and for communities and makes it possible for individuals and communities to do things they couldn't do before because uh, the ability to collect information, harness information, process information, monitor things and so on has reduced so dramatically. We should also recognize that these technologies also reduce transaction costs for government. They also make it easier for government to collect information, to monitor, to enforce. And this isn't a story about technology only empowering one side of the ledger. And, and I think Todd's attentive to this. He has some discussion in the book, for example, about uh, the effects of privacy and the like. Uh, but when you think about environmental protection, right, this, it matters how the technology is used. So Todd tells some stories about how technologies enable conservationists to identify uh, different types of species and whether or not they are endangered or where they are located. Uh, there's, a, there's a story I really liked about how um, uh, enabling conservationists to identify with greater precision when uh, migratory populations of birds need particular types of habitat in particular places so that um, it, it's a way of dramatically reducing the cost of providing um, uh, but it's essentially temporary habitat for certain species. So technology about species used in that way um, has a decentralizing effect, has an efficiency effect. But some of those same technologies can be used to monitor what species are on which people's lands and use that as a trigger for the enforcement of the Endangered Species Act take prohibition on private land. Those sorts of technologies can be used to enforce environmental requirements that often are focused on paperwork violations, technical violations that have no actual correlation to environmental impacts, but are written into our laws, and those same technologies will make it easier for citizens groups, individuals, and so on, to ratchet down the stringency and enforcement of, uh, of regulations, which may or may not be producing environmental benefit. So I think we have to recognize that these technologies, when they reduce transaction costs, they reduce transaction costs uh, for lots of actors, and, and we need to be aware of that. Um, in terms of, of what I, where I would, I guess, go beyond the book, um, Todd offers three recommendations at the end about how to encourage more of what he's talking about, and I think they are all good recommendations. One, identify barriers to innovation and reduce them. You know, are there ways of making it easier to develop and deploy these sorts of technological innovations? That's obviously very important. He talks about the, the need to focus more on the outcomes we care about, right? We care about the water quality. We don't care about the, what's written into the permit of the facility along the river. We care about the actual quality in the water. And if we can reduce the costs of actually measuring that, we should be able to reorient our environmental policies accordingly. Fully agree with that. And he talks about the need for greater transparency and access to information. I fully agree with that as well. What, and perhaps this is my background as a law professor, what... I would think we need to also pay uh, greater attention to, and I think this relates to the caveats I raised uh, before, is the institutional arrangements in which these technolo technology changes occur and in which those technologies will be deployed. Right? What determines whether a given transaction cost technology is going to be liberty enhancing or conservation enhancing or government empowering depends in part on the institutional and legal framework uh, in which it is developed and deployed and the incentives that that institutional framework creates. So we think about fishing, 
And if we think about a regulatory regime that focuses on you know, how many days the boat's at sea and what type of nets they're using and how long the nets are in the water and so on, these technologies will make it much easier for the government to enforce those. They may not even need to require fishing boats to pay to have uh, human monitors on the boats anymore. We might be able to do it technologically. That will improve the enforcement of those regulations. It won't do much of anything for fishery conservation. If, on the other hand, those same technologies are deployed in fisheries that aren't subject to those sorts of command and control regulations, but are the sorts of fisheries where we have cat shares and other property-based uh, management uh, systems in place, these same technologies will dramatically enhance the efficiency and effectiveness of a property-based way of conserving and managing the resource. So that institutional arrangement, I think, is a key part in terms of how these technologies are used and what the effects are uh, they have uh, going forward. And if we think about thing, problems like climate change, with, which Todd mentioned, we re, I think we can see how, again, the importance of institutional arrangements. We've seen dramatic dematerialization in countries like the United States. Net dematerialization. We use year over year fewer molecules of stuff than the year before. It is an astounding, mind-boggling achievement that doesn't get nearly enough attention. It is driven by market institutions, the drive to do more with less. Using stuff costs money. Using less stuff costs less. That's what drives a lot of the micro changes Todd talks about. It drives large changes as well. We're not seeing the type of decarbonization that matches the dematerialization we've seen. Well, why is that? Well, I pay to use stuff. I don't pay to emit carbon. Is it because the atmosphere is unowned and so I don't have to enter into a contractual arrangement? Is it because there's no fee? We, we, can, we can conceptualize it a bunch of, of different ways, but the reality is, is that the institutional arrangement is why we see tremendous progress in one context and we don't see it in the other. And so again, the one, the one uh, I guess, takeaway that I would offer is that to maximize the advantage and the benefits of the sorts of technological developments Todd's talking about, we need to think very carefully about the institutional arrangements in which these tech, uh, technologies uh, get developed and deployed, because that will, in many instances, determine whether they produce the sorts of outcomes uh, that I think we all uh, would hope for. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Would you like to take a moment to respond to that before we open for questions from the audience? Uh, yeah, sure. I think that's great. I like all of those things. Um, uh, I will just address uh, one thing real quickly, which is uh, big things are important. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I probably didn't talk about enough in my book is the ability to scale to take small things and scale them up so that they are big. And I'll give one example. Um, so I can tell you that my home uh, in the mountains of Washington State right now is using 180 watts um, on my phone, um, which is extremely small. It's a nice day today, apparently, back home. Um, uh, because I have a little thing called a sense monitor in my electrical box, and it just clips to the two wires going into my house and uses artificial intelligence to determine how much electricity is going into my house, and then based on the unique signature of the appliances, the artificial intelligence can tell me what appliances I'm using and how I'm using the electricity. I'm an energy geek, right? I think about these things all the time, and yet when I put this in my house, I was shocked to find out how much my light bulbs were using. 
And so when I turned on my kitchen lights, it would go way up. I swapped them out for LEDs and it went way down. Uh, so this is right. So for someone like me, buying one of these things and putting in my electrical box makes sense. Uh, but not many people, other people would do that. But since their algorithm now um, has been, is included in iTron smart meters. So iTron is one of the major uh, provider of smart meters for homes across the country. And so now the technology that I had to pay extra for, um, because I'm a geek, is now going to be available to basically everybody so that they can do something similar. So the, you're absolutely right. Unless things can scale, um, oftentimes you know, the impact is very limited. And I will say that I think that that's really important. Government is not capable of doing a million small things, but that that doesn't mean that those small problems, localized problems, aren't important to solve. And small technology now allows us to solve, to address those issues in ways that government probably would never get to because they're too small. So I think that's, we shouldn't overlook that, but it is, it is absolutely correct that we also need to make sure that technologies can be scaled, and I think that's just one of example where something small has now been developed and now will be available across the country. Thank you both for your remarks. We'll now be taking questions from the audience. Uh, for the online audience, again, you can join the conversation and submit questions by using the hashtag CatoEvents on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, or you can submit questions via the comments box on Cato's website if you're watching this live through that. If you're in our in-person audience, please uh, wait to be called upon and for a microphone to uh, arrive at in front of you before asking your question. And please speak clearly and directly into the microphone so that everyone in the conference center and online is able to hear your question. And please announce your name and affiliation if you have one before asking your question. I saw, uh, I see a hand up here that I think we're going to begin with. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. My website's called meetmedc.com. It's basically oriented towards consumers. And I wanted to ask you, uh, Todd, if you have any thoughts on the drone pollinators that I've heard, the bee drone pollinators, you probably read about that. Um, I'm also going to uh, suggest that you might, if you haven't seen this movie, it's, it's eight years old, and you probably already know it's called uh, Eye in the Sky, that in, features a little pest that kind of swoops in and shoots video and spies on uh, assailants of some sort. So maybe you might, can uh, talk about what products you would like to promote. If you have anything you want to sell or a website, uh, feel free to announce that too. So I... Unfortunately, I, uh, I just wrote a book. I haven't chosen any technologies that I can sell, so I am just a popularizer of other people and helping them get rich. Um, but drones, so the question I think you heard was about drones and drone pollinators. Um, drones are really interesting because, again, in the same way that the app I just talked about provides information that I can now use, um, even for experts, that level that granularity of information is really useful. And I'll give you two examples of how drones are being used um, in agriculture. Uh, the first is, is that drones are now being used to go over, to 
go over a crop. And what they will do is that they'll look at, okay, these areas are growing well, these areas are poor, Here's the, there's a pest infestation here, this needs more water. And what it allows, and I actually tell a story of a farmer in um, Alabama who's using the drone information so that he can target pesticides. So instead of simply putting it over the whole, the whole crop, they can apply it only in particular areas. Right? This is not only reduces pesticides that get in the water because a certain amount runs off, but it reduces his costs. So that the information that is now available to farmers to target fertilizer, pesticides, water, other things like that, contributes to this reduction in the amount of you know, molecules and things that we use and saves money. So it's good for the environment. It aligns environment and financial incentives. I'll give you another example, which is in addressing pests. So we were just talking about in Washington State, there's a lot of grape growers. Um, if you don't drink Washington State wines, you should. They're excellent. But uh, one of the challenges is, is that they have pests that will will um, destroy the leaves. And what they used to do was hang little pieces of paper um, for, and I'm forgetting the name of the, uh, the, the fly, but anyway, it was a, basically the larva would come out and eat the pests. So they were using you know, one uh, insect to destroy the other insect. And so what uh, I talked with one um, uh, uh, grape grower who was now using, instead of having the labor-intensive effort of putting these little pieces of paper with the larva on every single one of their vines, now had a drone fly over that dropped these uh, basically in sawdust on all of their grapes, and then the pests and then the insects had the same effect of destroying the pests. So these technologies are now widely available, and so those are just two examples of how you can apply drones to you know, get more information or reduce the labor costs of um, you know, fighting pests that are destroying crops. And then, of course, the fewer crops that are destroyed, the, you know, the less resources you have to use. You're not putting fertilizer, water, and everything else on a, on a vine that is just going to die because of pests. Our next question comes from online, someone who identifies himself or herself only as an interested listener in uh, Qatar. We have an international audience watching this. Uh, says, please comment on carbon in the atmosphere as an externality. Are carbon markets a way to address climate change? And if so, who decides what is the right amount of carbon in the atmosphere? Um. So, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I mean, so is, is uh, carbon an, an externality? I don't like the word externality because I don't think it really tells us very much, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but certainly there is a resource that, for all practical purposes, is uh, commonly owned by all of us, the atmosphere. Uh, and the increase of carbon in the atmosphere does have effects um, that uh, will harm uh, some folks. Um, uh, disproportionately, people living in parts of the world that did not uh, contribute to the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere in the first place. And I've written elsewhere why um, this sh should matter to libertarians. And uh, the book that was mentioned at the beginning, Climate Liberalism, is a, a collection of essays that uh, try and think about how classical liberal principles should apply to this. Um, at present, my own view is there is no way to, um, there is no single 
resource owner or entity that could make the decision about how the atmosphere is or is not going to be used, and that could be held liable for it being used in a way that harms others. Um, technology allows us to uh, aggregate ownership and management of lots of resources that historically could not be managed in that way, um, but we don't know how to do that with the atmosphere. So then the question becomes, what does our second best uh, proxy for that inst institutional arrangement look like, and to what extent uh, are we worried about um, that second best uh, doing more harm than good? My own view of the things is that we would think about doing is one, we would recognize that because use of the atmosphere is not priced, because the atmosphere is not owned, um, that uh, we do not get the degree of investment in carbon re reducing technologies that we would otherwise get. And uh, so we could char characterize that as, as a public good problem and uh, that would be at least a theoretical justification for the government subsidizing um, the development of such technologies, and then the question empirically becomes what's the most effective way to do that. I, I've argued elsewhere that things like technology inducement prizes are, are far, a far better way of approximating uh, the market incentives we would have if the atmosphere were treated uh, as an owned resource uh, than things like traditional uh, ex-ante research and development grants. Um, the other thing I would do, which would probably be more controversial, is I would have a revenue neutral carbon tax um, uh, as a proxy for paying to use the atmosphere. Um, there's a chapter in the Climate Liberalism book uh, by Mark Budolfson that argues, I think, persuasively that the likelihood that any such tax would be greater um, than uh, the cost imposed from emitting carbon is exceedingly unlikely. That is to say, the likelihood that we adopt a tax that is too high uh, is very small. Um, but the idea is that would be a second best approximation of what we would have w if one had to pay to use the atmosphere the way one has to pay to use physical material. And so if we want the degree of decarbonization that we uh, have in terms of, or to approximate dematerialization, we want there to be a, a non-zero price on emitting carbon, and that would be a way to do it. Um, but we are in the realm of second best, and um, in, in the sense that we're not, it's not like a lot of other environmental resources whereby expanding property rights and fleshing out markets, we can let the institutional arrangement take care of things. We're trying to use government to create proxies, and there are obviously lots of empirical questions that uh, should affect how or what second best measures we think are better or worse than others. Let me, let me just add to that real quickly with the carbon price. The discussion about then what is, what is the proper carbon price so that you create the behavior you want, um, which I think is sort of a backwards way to do it, but it's the way we discuss. How high does it have to be to induce people to change their behavior to meet the climate targets that we have set, like, you know, 0% in 2050 or things like that, which I think are arbitrary, but nonetheless, that's how we think about it. And it's based on the, the elasticity, or rather in, a, in the elasticity of demand for energy. What information does, though, and what the technology does is that it makes um, electricity demand more elastic. Right? Carbon actually does have a price. It is the price of energy. And if you can get people to respond to that price and give them ways to respond to that price, independent of a separate carbon price, you can sort of kill two birds with one stone. So um, every time, so, you know, uh, Costco 
was invented in Washington State, not too far where I live. Um, and so um, my wife has to hear me complain um, every time there's a sunny Saturday in Seattle and there's a long line of people driving uh, Lexuses, um, getting gas at Costco because it's 20 cents a gallon cheaper. Um, and then she hears my speech about how they're going to wait 20 minutes to save 20 cents a gallon for 15 gallons, which is $3, Right. So I actually think that when you provide information to people, sometimes they overreact to price signals. They should not be waiting $20 on a, sun, on a sunny Saturday in Seattle to save $3, but they are. And I think that if you can give them that information, it makes people respond more than they would otherwise so that the cost of a carbon price can be lower and that we can take advantage of existing energy prices to achieve some of those goals. I'm not saying that's a substitute, but often, especially in Washington State where I'm from, I hear arguments that the price for carbon has to be $100 a metric ton, which is like almost 90 cents a gallon, in order to get people to do what we want. If you can give people the information and then give them an opportunity to tools to save it, I think the price can be much lower. I could just two, two really quick things. One, I mean, I, and Todd might agree with this. I mean, I don't think energy prices are a good proxy because not all energy sources are remotely carbon equivalent. I live in Ohio. I still get a lot of power to my house that comes from coal, or at least that's what the utilities are getting. I can pay a premium to have it not be coal and to have it be. Uh, coal-free or to even be all renewable. Um, so I'm paying more for less carbon if I want to make that choice. And if all we're focused on is the price of energy, we get a good signal that encourages us to reduce energy, but it's not a signal on carbon, that they're not, they're not equivalent. The other thing I would just say is, um, I think one of the messages of Todd's book is that um, the size of something like a carbon tax is actually less important than it simply be non-zero. Because if it's non-zero, there is then a constant incentive on the margin to figure out how to reduce that cost in terms of the carbon intensity of an activity. And currently, other than people that want to invest in this for philanthropic reasons or other, those sorts of reasons, the price is zero. And uh, the reality is, is that if it's a non-zero price, some of the things that he talks about in his book that have an effect on carbon would be vastly more effective um, because there would now be that incentive on the margin to care about carbon that doesn't exist now. So I actually don't think um, that you need this massive price. I would also make it revenue neutral. That is to say I would offset um, any that tax w with uh, per capita reductions in, in income taxes um, because I don't think we want the government collecting more money. We merely want to shift the incidence of payments away from things like um, wealth creation and labor onto things like consumption. Um, but I think one of the messages of his book is that you actually don't need a massive tax or a massive governmental intervention. You need something that's creating the right incentive on the right margins, and then we have lots of ways to supercharge those incentives through uh, technologies that reduce transaction costs. Um, I saw a question uh, right here from the in-person audience. Hi, uh, Marianne Tupi from Cato. Um, Jonathan already mentioned the role of prizes in order to stimulate innovation. Uh, question for both of you. Um, does government spending on R&D um, 
stimulate innovation overall? What, what is your understanding of the literature, given that within the abundance movement, so to speak, um, you know, there are differing views. Part of the abundance movement wants as much government as possible uh, spending, the taxpayer spending, in order to stimulate innovation. Uh, the other half is uh, more skeptical. And uh, question specifically for Todd. Um, can you share with us perhaps some good news about what's happening in the fisheries, specifically in aquaculture, in order to grow more fish? <laughs> thank you. Yes, thank you. So uh, the first question, which is the role of government um, spending primarily on basic research. Um, so I, I think that there is certainly a role um, uh, and I'll give you an example, which is the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in um, Colorado, which is part of the Department of Energy. They developed a model on fuel efficiency for vehicles, um, like how cars use gas, going uphill, downhill, things like that, um, that was very granular to estimate, okay, so if you're going from point A to point B, what's the best route? Um, and so that actually was integrated uh, by Google into Google Maps. So now when you do Google Maps, you will be given a choice. It defaults, I think that you, it, I mean, you can change it, but it defaults to um, if there isn't a substantial difference between two routes, it will default to the least carbon intensive one. Now, the role that government innovation or the role that government funding played there is to create the basic research, but it wasn't they didn't apply it. It was only applied by Google. And then there's another company that I mentioned um, called Green Lines that does a similar sort of thing where it helps you get from point A to point B in the most carbon-friendly way. It gives you the way to get there the cheapest, the fastest, and then the most carbon-friendly. And like I said, Google Maps uses uh, the model from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. So I think that's a good example of where funding for basic research is good because then it gets applied by the market. And it gets applied in a way that, you know, literally is that something that, you know, millions of people use every single day. Um, I think the challenge I have is, is obviously with the Inflation Reduction Act, where then politicians say, here's the suite of, of technologies that we like. Um, and then they subsidize those rather than the basic research. So... It, uh, you say that there's controversy about it. I'm conflicted in my own mind, so there's controversy in my own brain about you know, how far you should go with that. But there are some examples, I think, of where it's useful. The second with aquaculture, uh, uh, we can talk more about it, but um, in Washington State, um, because we're Washington State, um, the commissioner of public lands who oversees the bedlands underneath the water um, so I sit on the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council, um, just banned aquaculture in Washington State because you have to get a lease from the state to put these nets. This is absurd to me because um, the science is very clear that this is not a problem. I mean, NOAA Fisheries, um, you know, is very clear. I was working with aquaculture folks to say, okay, let's limit the impacts. But we actually did a video um, with the Jamestown Sklalem tribe. The Jamestown Sklalem tribe actually has stopped fishing for salmon on the one creek that's there because salmon populations are very low, And so, but they have a treaty right. They have the right to catch fish. But what they said is, look, if we keep catching fish, this isn't, this, our stream is never going to recover. So we're going to forego harvest of Chinook, on our stream to allow them to recover. And instead, we're going to create aquaculture. And they were originally doing black 
cod, which is called sablefish, but now they're doing steelhead, which is um, basically a, an adramus seagoing trout. Um, and that's what we're going to do in lieu of harvesting so that we can recover. And then Washington State banned it. <laughs> so I have some questions about whether that's even legal in terms of treaty rights, but it certainly is counterproductive. Right? We, don't, we want to give salmon space to recover and reduce pressure on harvest, and yet we have now cut off the alternative, or at least what they'll say is, well, but it's okay upland. Well, it's very expensive to put that on land as opposed to in the water. So it's really, I think we've really cut off our nose to spite our face, but if we want to talk more, I can chat more with you about it. So on the, the question of government research, I'm generally very skeptical of government R&D, I think, especially the way we do it now, where you have centralized entities decide what things should be worth researching and what um, uh, courses of investigation should be funded and distributed centrally in the hopes that some of that bears fruit. I think if we want the government to play a role in stimulating innovation, we should think more uh, seriously about the way the other ways we encourage innovation and if that approach is insufficient then how do we supplement it so what's the primary way we encourage innovation well we protect property rights and in particular we protect intellectual property uh, under the intellectual property clause of the constitution we give patents uh, for a set period of time to people that uh, discover and disclose their inventions and that produces uh, great incentives for innovation now maybe the patent laws are too protective or less protective on the margins they may need tweaking, but the general idea that a limited intellectual property right stimulates innovation is, is what we've relied upon. In the environmental context, um, that doesn't, often doesn't work because we're often dealing with environmental harms that arise in what are effectively uh, open access commons. So the thing we are worried about is not incorporated into the market system. If I invent a new technology that reduces the use of copper, I can, uh, through the patent right, capture the benefit I am providing to the world through the temporary monopoly the patent gives me. If I come up with an invention that reduces the emission of something into the air, I can't capture that value because I'm not paying for emissions into the air. And the various regulatory proxies we have with that are, are nothing remotely like uh, putting a price on it. So I've argued that that would therefore justify the government trying to replicate the sort of super competitive returns we give to inventors through the patent system, through prizes, in contexts where uh, we're dealing with environmental problems where the patent system is insufficient to provide the returns to innovators. Um, but the key thing about that is, is that all that what the government would be doing there is not saying you get the prize or you get the or you get the prize. It would say here is what the the thing is we're hoping someone creates. Here is the the achievement we want accomplished, and whoever does it, however they do it, wins the prize. Um, that stimulates competition, it stimulates investment, and most importantly, it draws upon the fact that one of the reasons why technological breakthroughs are breakthroughs is because they're unanticipated. They don't come from the regular folks thinking about problems in the regular ways, who are the people that submit the grants to the Department of Energy or whomever for the R&D funding. It comes from the people that have the idea that people that everyone else thinks is crazy, but that turns out to be right. And it's why private companies and foundations are using prizes increasingly. Netflix's um, recommendation algorithm is, is based on the result of a prize that they financed. And if there's gonna be government financing of technological innovation in those areas where markets are insufficient, I think that's a much better way of doing it than the traditional R&D 
um, approach, and that's even without getting into the public choice problems that uh, traditional R&D uh, encourages. Thank you both so much. Unfortunately, we don't have time for any more questions, but if you're here in person, please uh, join us for lunch in the foyer. And please consider picking up a copy of this incredible book, uh, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Hopefully, Todd will be able to stick around and sign a few copies. Um, I even brought a green Sharpie. Oh, <laughs> signed in green, extra incentive there very on uh, theme. Well, thank you all again, and let's give our speakers some applause.